Let's pray together. Father, in our song, we have just asked you to speak. And now, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to hear as we should. Lord, keep us from being dull of hearing, sluggish in ears. Make us those who are gripped by your word. Make us those who feel in our souls that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And Lord, make us those who hear the words today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Lord, cause us to respond. Cause us to be those who, by faith in Christ, are carried forward to maturity. Christ-likeness. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're back in Hebrews, so I would invite you to open with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And I don't normally read the sermon text before we work through it, but I'm going to read Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3 as we begin this morning. So Hebrews 5, beginning from verse 11, the author writes, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this, but by this time, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I wanted to read the text to get it before us so that I can ask the question, what does the author mean when he refers to milk, and what does he mean when he refers to solid food? So I want to start with this idea, and then we'll work our way through the text. I'm going to propose an understanding of milk and solid food, and I want you to be a Berean. This is a, this is a very difficult, I think, interpretive question. What does he mean by milk? What does he mean by solid food? And I think that there are two parts uh, to the answer to each. I think part of it is what you need to be taught, so it's mental, it's intellectual, and then part of it is what you need to do. So, you know, he, he speaks in 512 of how they, they need someone to teach them again, and then he's going to talk about milk and solid food, so I think there's a learning component, and then he speaks in 514 of those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. So this is something that we actually carry out in our lives. So when it comes to milk, here's what I'm going to propose. And as we, as we think through the text together, you test this understanding of milk against what the text says, against your life, against the whole Bible. 
The, the intellectual component of milk, I think, is the gospel call to take up the cross. It's the way that the, the, the truth of Christianity confronts us that we must crucify ourselves and identify with the Lord Jesus and take up our crosses, not literally a Roman cross, but, you know, death to self, death to sin, death to the world, and then follow after the Lord Jesus. I think that's the, the intellectual component of the milk aspect. The, the, what we might call ethical component, what we do, I think, it, it comes into play with that initial decision. When you make that decision where you say, Jesus is worth it, what I will lose, what it will cost me, is worth losing because Jesus is worth it, and then you do it. So I think the, the gospel call and then the initial decision to follow Christ is milk. Solid food, I think, based on what the author does in the passage and what he's, what he's been doing and what he's going to go on to do later in the book, I think solid food is understanding the Old Testament foundation for that gospel call. It's a way of looking at the Old Testament that, that makes you come to the cross and say, well, of course. It's, it's, it's a certain reading of the Old Testament that when you hear Jesus say, was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then to enter into his, into his glory? And because of the way that you've learned to read the Old Testament, your response is, of course, naturally, this makes perfect sense. That, so I think that Old Testament understanding of the foundation for the gospel call is the intellectual component of solid food. The ethical component of solid food, I think, is a lifestyle that is accustomed to taking up the cross, rejoicing in sufferings, and ser serving others. So that when you are confronted with having to lay something down, there's not really this agony. There's not really this, oh, but this is what I really want. There's not really a soul turmoil. There's an, of course, this is what we do. We crucify our flesh. Of course, this is what we do. We serve other people. Of course, this is how life is. We never get what we want. We go on taking up the cross, following Jesus, because he's worth it. So I think that's the milk and the solid food that he has in, in view. And I want to illustrate for you the, uh, the living out of this, so the ethical component of solid food from this account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, you've, you've probably heard this story of how, as an old man, uh, this, this man named Polycarp, a, a very early Christian, maybe around 150 A.D., he was uh, reported to the authorities as someone who was not worshiping in accordance with what the Romans had mandated, because he was a Christian. And uh, so they, 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 they accosted him, they arrested him, and they said to him, Swear by the genius of Caesar. So they want, to him, they want him to confess how wonderful and magnificent Caesar is. And then they say to him, repent. Repent of this refusal to confess how awesome Caesar is. And then they say, say, away with the atheists. And the atheists are the Christians because the Christians won't go along with the worship of the Roman gods. And, and the text goes on. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium, motioned toward them with his hand, and then, groaning, 
as he looked up to heaven, said, away with the atheists. But when the magistrates, magistrate persisted and said, swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ, Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And, and then he goes on to confess the faith and is martyred. So I, I think living out solid food is this recognition, Christ is worth it, and then this glad embrace of following the Lord Jesus, even unto death. On the next page, it says of Polycarp, as he was being put to death, it says, as he spoke these and many other words, he was inspired with courage and joy, and his face was filled with grace, so that not only did he not collapse in fright at the things that were said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his own herald, and it, and it goes on uh, to, to, to record his death. So, so I think a, a solid food that the author wants to get us to is a place where we understand the Old Testament foundation, we've heard the gospel call, we've in, initially responded to it, but then we've developed an accustomed way of life. Our senses have been trained for discerning good and evil. That's what this author, the author of Hebrews, is trying to work us toward. And as we've talked about, as we've been working through Hebrews, the challenge for these folks, I think, that the author is addressing, is that if they were to leave Christianity and revert to Judaism, they would be under the protective umbrella of Judaism, and they wouldn't be faced with this call to renounce Christ because the Jews were okay. The Romans didn't persecute the Jews because they'd had enough run-ins with them to know they weren't going to offer incense to Caesar. They weren't going to deny their God. So they let the Jews be the Jews. But then these other people, these Christians, they weren't letting the Christians be the Christians. So they're persecuting Christians, but the Jews are safe. And so I think these, these folks that the author of Hebrews is addressing, they're tempted to go back to Judaism to avoid the persecution. And, and so his message is, don't go back to Judaism, even if it would get you out of persecution, because Christ is God, and he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, I've given you a handout this morning that will present to you uh, my summary statements, and because the chiasms are on the summary, I'm not going to have to talk about it. I'm just going to read through the summary, and this will be a way to review what we've seen in the book to this point. I do want to note, though, that, that these structures, I think with minimal effort, you could commit these structures to memory. And then you could walk your way through the argument. So like, let's take chapter one, chapters one and two. You see that first unit. And with minimal effort, you could, you could learn in one, one, two, four, God has spoken in his son. One, five through 14, who is greater than the angels. Two, one through four, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Because 2, 5 through 9, it's not to angels that he submitted to world, the world to come, but to Christ. And then 2, 10 through 18, Christ was made like his brothers to be our great high priest. So there's a, a summary of chapters 1 and 2. And then if we go to 3, 1 through, through 4, 16, the author is urging his audience in 3, 1 through 6, consider Jesus the high priest of our confession and hold fast the confession with boldness. And then 3, 6 through 14, the wilderness generation did not enter into God's rest. 315 through 47. We who have believed enter into God's rest. 48 through 13. 
Joshua, the conquest generation, they entered the land, but in the land they did not enjoy Edenic Sabbath rest. That awaits the new heavens and new earth. And then 4, 14 through 16, because of the high priest, hold fast the confession and draw near with boldness. Now, as, as, we, as we consider these two units, notice how the central unit in both has to do with hearing and believing. Two, one, look, at, look at Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And then if you look at 3.15, he's quoting that statement from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, which is also the end of that unit in 4.7. Today, if you hear his voice. And now he's going to address these folks in 5.11. You have become dull of hearing. So, so, so this hearing component, the author is very serious about this. Um, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 what we looked at together the last time we were in Hebrews together, we see there that um, Christ has been appointed the son, the son of God, and the Melchizedekian high priest, and he is the perfect source of eternal salvation. So the author introduces this idea that the Lord Jesus is the high priest according to Melchizedek, and then look at what he says in 5.11. About this we have much to say. So he's going he's gonna to go on. He's got more to say about Jesus being the high priest according to Melchizedek. And he, and, he, and he says, it is hard to explain. So about this we have much to say. I think that refers back to 5, 1 to 10, this idea of Jesus being the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to return to that in the whole of chapter 7. Look at 7, 1. For this Melchizedek. And, and you can see in, in the... Uh, structure that I've given you of 5.1 through 7.28, that the passage we're in now, 5.11 through 6.12, is, stands across from 7.11 through 22. So in 7.11, he's really going to develop the implications of Jesus being the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So I would submit to you, that's the solid food. The solid, the solid food that he wants to get to, he does get to in chapter 7. And he is going to explain the Old Testament foundation of this gospel call to take up the cross and follow Jesus. But before he gets there, he's got to give them some milk. So 5.11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, I want to draw your attention to what he says over in 6.12. When we read the words in the ESV, so that you may not be sluggish. And, and it's unfortunate, I think, they, that they don't translate these two terms the same way. But the word dull in 5.11 is the same word sluggish in 6.12. And that's, that's bracketing 5.11 through 6.12. So we're only looking at the first part of this unit, 5.11 through 6.3. But 5.11 through 6.12 is the unit. And the whole thrust of the unit is don't be sluggish. And particularly, don't be sluggish in the way you hear. So what the author wants us to do is pay much closer attention. What he wants us to do is when we hear the words, today, if you hear his voice, he wants us to sit up and lock in and hear the word of God. It's, it's like what he says over in chapter 12 when he says in 1225, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
And, and the clear implication is God is speaking. The clear implication is that God is speaking in this letter, which is a remarkable claim. The author is claiming to present us with scripture, the word of God. And he's saying, don't neglect God as he speaks. So if you want a point of application, there it is. Listen closely. Pay much closer attention. Don't be sluggish. Don't be dull of hearing. And then verse 12 of chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now let's just pause here and think about what he means. I, I think this author believes the passage that Denny wrote, or Denny read, Denny didn't write Ephesians. <laughs> the, passage, the passage that Denny read in Ephesians that the Lord Jesus gave some as pastors and teachers, right? So I think that the author of Hebrews, and he knows, he's going to talk in chapter 13 about how they should obey their leaders and submit to them, uh, those who are keeping watch over their souls. So he's not saying every individual member of the church needs to become a pastor and be a teacher. That's not what he's saying. I think he's saying something like this. Every individual member of the church needs to be a disciple maker. You remember what the Lord Jesus said? Go make disciples teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So I think the author is saying to them, you all need to be disciple makers. Now, in the, in, in the teaching sense, to go back to my, my milk and solid food thing, there is, there is a need for people to hear the gospel call and for people to respond to the gospel call. But to be a teacher, to be someone who is able to be an example to others, able to explain the Christian life to others, you really need to understand the Old Testament foundation for the gospel call. And then you, you really need to have an accustomed lifestyle where you are, you're used to. Your senses are trained to taking up the cross. You're not somebody that every time it comes to you to take up the cross, there's a new decision point. It needs to become given. This is who we are. We're servants. This is what we do. We die to ourselves. This is how we live. And when we fail, which we all do all the time, we repent. We're used to this. This is the way that we live. I think that's the solid food that he wants to move his hearers toward. So verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, I think those basic principles of the oracles of God, I think that's a kind of way of saying the, the sort of starting points of the scriptures, how the Bible starts and then the key ideas as you move through it. And so really, I think what he's, what he's doing is he's saying, you need to understand the Bible, which is what he's doing throughout this letter. He's explaining the Old Testament, and he's explaining how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ so that he can then call the audience to, for instance, in 12.3, in consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, and he goes on to, to urge them to follow Christ, essentially. So these basic principles of the oracles of God, I think, are to be identified with the milk that they need. So he says there in, in verse, 12, 
verse 12 of chapter 5. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And he's going to, he's going to further explain what this milk is, but he, he, he unfolds it as we work through. If, if I'm right about this identification of milk as the gospel call and then the initial decision to take up the cross and then solid food being the Old Testament foundation and the scriptural understanding and then the accustomed lifestyle, what is he saying to them when he says to them, you need milk, not solid food? I think he's addressing their temptation to fall away from Christianity and go back to Judaism to avoid persecution. Because what he's saying to them is essentially something like this. This is who we are as Christians. We follow the guy that got crucified by the authorities of the world. We suffer for his sake. We, we seek, as Paul said, to have a death like his that we might have a life like his. So I think he's, he's confronting their temptation to fall away. And it's, it's like he's saying, you're making me take you back to the gospel call and the initial decision. We should be beyond this. And, and I think that this applies to our generation as well. It's going to apply to every generation in a new way. But in our generation, some of the particular ways that people could be tempted to fall away from Christ, to avoid persecution has to do with the way that if, if you don't make the confession of faith that the culture, culture is requiring about male and female or about what marriage is and whether it can be constituted by a male and a male or about who has the right to kill who in terms of uh, various ways that the unborn are put to death. And, and the, all, if you don't make the culture's good confession on all those things, it is as though you are an atheist. And it is as though they are saying to you, swear to the genius of Caesar and say, away with the atheists. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that the author of Hebrews wants to say to us, we don't need to be at the initial gospel call and the initial choice to follow Christ again. We need to be at the place where we understand the Old Testament. We understand this is how it's always gone for the people of God. We understand that naturally it went this way for Jesus. And we understand, because we've proved this out in our lives, this is the way it's going to go for us, and we're going to keep right on following Christ. I think that's what the author is saying when he says, look at verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What's the word of righteousness? Well, I think the word of righteousness is to be identified with the basic principles of the oracles of God. In, in other words... The word of righteousness would, would reach all the way back to, to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and, and go forward from there and, and be constituted of all these places where people are challenged to forsake what the scriptures clearly say or to forsake what God has clearly said in order to side with the serpent and his seed, in order to, to have it where the serpent and his seed are no longer at enmity with you. And so to be, a, to be someone who is uh, skilled in the word of righteousness is to be someone who lives an accustomed lifestyle of taking up the foot cross and following Jesus. Someone who something doesn't go right, something doesn't go the way you want it to, something doesn't 
uh, someone doesn't act the way you want them to act. And, and there's not this agony that takes us back to the question again, am I going to be a follower of Jesus or, or not? No, there's a response of, what does it look like for me to honor the Lord Jesus in this situation? What does it look like for me to follow Christ now that this has happened? I think this is what the author is pushing us to, this skill in the word of righteousness that makes it so that we constantly live out the gospel. Verse 13, everyone who lives on milk, I think what he means is everyone who's constantly going back to, am I going to stick with Jesus or not? Everyone who's constantly reevaluating, is Jesus worth it or not? Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. You don't know the Old Testament like you need to. You don't understand the, the dynamics in the New Testament like you need to since he is a child. And, and here, this is why we, we read Ephesians, because there in Ephesians 2, Paul is saying, we don't want to be children anymore. We want to grow up to mature manhood. And we can think, too, of what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says to them, he says, I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for solid food yet. And the author of Hebrews, moving in these same directions, operating, I think, with these same ideas, now says in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for the mature. So he wants to get to that solid food, and he's going to go to that solid food. Chapter 7 is coming. But he, he, wants, to, he wants to make sure that the decision has been made and that everybody agrees Christ is worth it. And then he's going to go on to the Old Testament foundation and the accustomed lifestyle. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature. Here, here's who the mature are in verse 14. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And, and this is another one of those places where I think um, athletic analogies and sports are so helpful for understanding the Christian life. Because, I mean, you, know, you wouldn't have to use athletics. You could use folding laundry. I fold a lot of laundry, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty efficient. I mean, my hands move quickly. I, I, can, I can move those, those uh, pieces of fabric into the position that I want them to. And then when I have someone in my house who doesn't normally fold laundry, they do a bad job. <laughs> and, and they do it slowly. They don't have nice creases. They don't have seams lined up. They, 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 they're not skilled. Look, powers of discernment trained... By constant practice. Where does that come from? It comes from doing it over and over again. And so it's like the author is saying, look at where you are and look at what will get you from being unskilled to being skilled. You need constant practice. You need to go over this again and again. You need to get used to this in your mind. You need to make it so that it's a, it's a natural thing to go from this synapse to that, for that whatever it is in your brain to fire from this synapse to that synapse, and it's, it's a connection point that is so established and so well-grooved that it just happens. It's almost like, it reminds me of, of the Israelites in the wilderness, you know, that the author's been talking about how the, the wilderness generation failed back in chapter 3. I really think that all those repeated narratives of all their, all their grumbling, that is supposed to make us look at that and say, I need to learn 
that when the Lord puts me in a bad situation, I expect him to do good things for me. Not when the Lord puts me in a bad situation, I should grumble again. And you just think through what the Lord did for those people. They're slaves in Egypt. Well, he liberates them. He, they get to the Red Sea. Here comes the army of Pharaoh. What do they do? They grumble. He gets them through the Red Sea. There's nothing to eat out here. What do they do? They grumble. Then they don't have anything. He gives them manna from heaven. Then they don't have anything to drink. You would think that they would say, hey, listen, we were slaves. He got us through the Red Sea. He gave us this magic bread on the ground. Water is not going to be a problem for him. He's going to do something awesome. Let's just watch and wait. That's not how they respond. They're ready to kill Moses. And on and on and on. I mean, they send spies into the land. The spies come back with it. Really intimidating big people in that land. How do they respond? Oh, God's going to overcome them. He crushed Pharaoh. Pharaoh was nothing to God. This is, I think this is what the author is trying to say. By constant practice, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves ourselves of how the Lord has brought us through. Constantly reminding ourselves of the Lord's promises in the scriptures so that when we get into one of these bad situations, our response is not, he brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. No, our response is, look, he started this work. He's going to finish it. That's what he does. Look at, look at his history. Look at the pattern of his behavior. He keeps putting his people in impossible situations and then he keeps getting them out of it. And, and if he doesn't get us out, we can be like Daniel and his, Daniel's friends, you know. Look, the Lord is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, it's not going to help anything for us to bow to your gods. So we're going to trust him one way or another. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, in this context, I think the good and evil that is supposed to be distinguished, what would evil be? Evil would be fleeing Christ to get back under the protective umbrella of Judaism so that you can avoid persecution in this life. That would be evil. I think the author also indicates that it would be not good to continue in a state where every time it's like you raise the question anew. Every time you get yourself into a situation, it's like you're, you need some more milk. Am I going to follow Jesus again? I think he's saying that needs to be settled. You need to, by constant practice, learn to distinguish good from evil so that you naturally choose the good. And, and we, should, we should force this issue in our own thinking. There is good and there is evil. There is following Christ and there is not following Christ. And there's not this sort of in-between place where we keep choosing whether or not we're going to. No, we need to, we need to have that decided and we need to, to run with it. And then 6.1 he says, therefore, having, having said everything we've just read, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, I don't, when he says let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he doesn't mean you don't need to think about the gospel anymore. I think what he means is you need to have that decision made and you need to move on from that decision point. That needs to be settled and let's move on. And then these words that the ESV renders, go on to maturity. Um, I believe that the NIV uh, actually captures the nuance here really well. And, it, and it, it brings out that this is a passive. 
what he says here is something like, this is actually the, the, ser- the title of this sermon, let us be carried to perfection. Let us be carried to perfection. I mean, maturity and perfection, they're sort of related terms. Um, let us be carried. I think, I think the idea is, as you trust in Christ, he's the one who's going to bear you forward. And where he's, where he's taking you is to Christ's likeness. Where he's taking you is to a place where you don't have to ask the question, am I going to follow Jesus? That's settled. That's done. And you're used to responding this way. You don't have to ask the question, do I want to serve those people? That's a question that's already been settled. This is who I am. I am a servant. If I can, I will serve them. You don't have to ask the question, am I going to make the good confession? Am I going to tell the truth about male and female? Am I going to tell the truth about marriage? Am I going to tell the truth about how Caesar's not a genius and the Caesars were not geniuses? I mean, take your pick of the current cultural cultural idolatries. Am I going to tell the truth about how whatever Messiah figure they want to prop up is not the Messiah? And whatever utopia they're trying to achieve, they're never going to attain it. Am I going to tell the truth about the gospel being the only hope for salvation? Absolutely. This is who I am. This is what I do. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. I think that elementary doctrine of Christ, again, is the milk, you know, the initial decision, the initial gospel call, and go on to maturity. Um, Powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then it's a no-brainer. Once you know what the good is, you choose it. Not laying again. And then here, in in verses 1 and 2, what he gives us are these three pairs, all of which I think relate to that initial decision point. So this is what he says here in 6, 1 and 2, is is helping me to identify what I think he means by milk. So there in verse 1, he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Well, that's part of the initial decision point, isn't it? Those dead works, that's that's what lures me away. That's what tempts me away from God. And I need to turn away from those things and put my faith in God. That's that's the initial point of conversion. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's the first pair. The second pair, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. Those two go together. Um, the, the word washings, there's a, there's a footnote in the ESV, and down in the lower margin it says, or baptisms. And I think he's talking about baptisms here. I think he's talking about the, the cleansing rituals of the Old Testament, which were then uh, brought to a kind of fulfillment in John's baptism, which is then brought to fulfillment in the baptism that Jesus uh, gives to his disciples and sends them out uh, to practice upon those who become disciples of Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them. The disciples get baptized. So instruction about, I would say, baptisms, and then the laying on of hands. I I think the author is referring to the way that in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts chapter 19, the Holy Spirit came upon people when uh, those who had proclaimed the gospel to them laid their hands upon them. So again, this is initial conversion, baptism being the initiation right into the believing community and the coming of the Spirit 
being the sign that you have been brought into the community, that you've been born again, and that you are now part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I think that second pair relates to that initial decision point, initial conversion. And then the third pair, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so often, these two bits of information, your body's going to be raised, and then a judgment is going to be rendered that is going to have eternal ramifications. So often, that is instrumental in people realizing, oh, I am going to stand before God. And I am going to give an account. I need a savior. I want to be raised from the dead to live in a glorified body, worshiping God and serving him in the new heavens and new earth forever, not raised from the dead and perfectly fitted out with a glorified body to endure God's eternal displeasure because I was a rebel, a rebel and because I refused to turn and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus willingly. Now, I, I just want to note here that the words eternal judgment are right there in the text. In other words, this book that is claiming to be scripture, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This book that we understand to be inspired by the Holy Spirit is speaking of a judgment that never ends, eternal judgment, okay? That to say, it is not later Christian theologians who somehow smuggled in, say, the doctrine of hell or somehow corrupted the teaching of the New Testament. No, it's right there in the Bible. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So that judgment that's going to be rendered at the great white throne is going to have everlasting ramifications. So I think these three pairs of items, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, Resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, all of these pertain, they, they're, they're all to be brought to bear on that initial decision point. And, and we're to be confronted with these things and realize, I need Jesus to save me. So, you know, if you're here this morning and you are not somebody who has made that decision, someone who's been confronted with what I've been referring to as the gospel call, now is your opportunity. Today. If you hear his voice, to quote Psalm 95 in the author of Hebrews, do not harden your heart. You should respond. You should not become dull of hearing. You should recognize God is righteous, God is holy, and God's judgment is going to last forever. And you should turn from your sin, repentance from dead works, and put your hope and trust in Jesus and of faith toward God. And then... We will put you under the waters of baptism to signify that you've been buried with him and that you've been raised up to live with him and that all your sins have been washed away. And you can publicly declare to the world that you trust in Christ. And the Holy Spirit will come into you. We don't really practice laying on of hands, but we do believe that the Spirit indwells everyone who believes. And then you can be confident about this resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Look at verse 3. The author writes... And this we will do. And I think he's, he's, he's pointing back to the first part of verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and be carried to perfection. This we will do, he says, if God permits. And, and he's, I think the author is confident, confident about these people that he's addressing, addressing in the same way that I'm confident about you all. This we will do if God permits. 
Um, let me think with you for just a moment, by way of conclusion, about some things that the Apostle Paul says about what it looks like to be mature. So I just want to read you a couple of passages that I, speak, I think speak directly to this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says here, <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That proven character, I think we could say, that's maturity. That's having your senses trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. And what goes into that? Well, what goes into that is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4. This is what Denny preached on in chapel this week. If you missed it, you should, you should go get the recording. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, we know this. Our bodies are going to break down. This is what's going to happen to us. Our, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, it's interesting that um, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, as he was about to be killed... They, they cried out of him, this is the teacher of Asia. Polycarp was a teacher. He was a teacher because he understood the Old Testament foundations of salvation, and he had a practiced lifestyle of taking up the cross and following Jesus. And then uh, the, the author of this account writes of others who suffered. And I want, as, as I read these words, I want you to listen for Things like Romans 5, 1 to 5, Romans 8, 18, I am convinced that the glory to be revealed in us is not worth being compared. The sufferings of the present time are not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 that I've just read. The, the author of this, this account says, of these martyrs, turning their thoughts to the grace of Christ, they despised the tortures of this world. Purchasing at the cost of one hour an exemption from eternal punishment. And the fire of their inhuman torturers felt cold to them. For they set before their eyes the escape from that eternal fire, which is never extinguished. While with the eyes of their heart they gazed upon the good things that are reserved for those who endure patiently. Things that neither ear has heard nor eye has seen nor has it entered into the human heart, but they were shown to them by the Lord. We want to be those who are ready for solid food because the decision has been made and the senses have been trained. And having done everything, as Paul says, to stand firm, stand therefore. Let's pray together.
Father, we love you. And we want to be those who live lives that please you. And so we pray that you would take this word and grip our hearts. Make us those who are committed not to be committed to not being dull of hearing. Cause us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, to hear your voice today. And we pray that by this, you would be honored as we boast in the hope of your glory, even as we boast in our sufferings. We ask that you do this for Christ's sake and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.